So I'm pleased to be with you all uh, this afternoon and evening and tomorrow morning, and really, um, really to honor you, maybe honor us, because everyone here is in some way offering uh, a gift to Spirit Rock, ultimately a gift to ourselves and to others. I'd like to talk this evening about uh, service as a path of practice. Our offering service to others as a way of practicing in the world that I think is, is very much a full-fledged path, potentially. It's a way of growing, exploring, transforming ourselves and others. So what I'd like to do is to talk about what that means. Each of us here has offered service in different ways at Spirit Rock, to the community at Spirit Rock, and many of you also conceive of your lives uh, as service and may be involved with other ways of um, helping others, offering support, or offering resources in different ways. One simple way of talking about service as a path of practice is to see one's life as centered on helping others. It's a way of understanding one's life that can give tremendous uh, unity and coherence. And personally, it's been important for me for quite a number of years. And just recently, uh, we completed a two-year program here at Spirit Rock called The Path of Engagement, which is explicitly about how we take service and social change work as a path of practice. We had about 50 people involved. We went through two years, ups and downs. As you might imagine, with that area, there were a lot of different opinions <laughs> that people had, and we had to navigate them at times. Uh, but uh, a lot of the focus was on how we connect our inner work with our service, and work in the world. And it's been an, um, an interest of mine also from quite a few years of work with uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship. You know, so an interest both at the levels of service as um, helping others, being volunteers, have, being part of the helping professions, service as social change work, Service very much in, in just very um, everyday ways that don't look like some glamorous notion of social change or service. It could be raising a family, or it could be teaching yoga, or something like that. Can that be conceived of with the motivation to help others? As many of you know, in uh, Buddhist tradition, especially in the Mahayana tradition, there's a tremendous emphasis on the importance of the motivation 
to help others, being at the center of one's life. So it's both sometimes seen as both the core intention that motivates us and also the practical ways to bring that into being, that it becomes uh, a path. And then most deeply, having access to experiences of interconnection and the sense that that wish to help others isn't just uh, being a good person, but it actually reflects something very deep and powerful about the nature of reality. And that's, that's uh, the direction, one of the directions that we practice in. I just finished uh, last Friday, meaning yesterday, <laughs> Uh, a five-day retreat that we were um, offering on Jewish mindfulness. Very interesting. First time, very interesting retreat, and Sylvia Borstein gave a talk the last evening, Thursday evening, and she talked about how, in a way, what gives us our energy and our inspiration for our lives is being in compassionate connection with others. She talked about uh, Viktor Frankl, who wrote a book on the um, concentration camps. Frankl said that those who seemed to survive the most were those who seemed to be more clearly in connection by helping others. There's something that generates life. And of course, it's not in those situations we can't be... Um, what um, precise about that, you know, a lot of all sorts of things happening there. But that was Frankel's observation that there was something that gave meaning and meaning was so important for well-being and survival. Something about um, that quality of meaning in feeling a compassionate connection to others. I think that's at the heart of our, of our service work. So I want to talk some about how that appears as a path of practice and mention some of the qualities that we develop. And I think that, that are developed in volunteer work as well as if our work in the world is also about service. I think it's present in uh, really any time we offer as it were, the gift of our energy, the gift of our time to others. Probably at the most fundamental level, the nature of our practice in a life of service is to offer to others and see the ways and work through the ways that we are cut off from others the ways that we hold ourselves separate. And some of the path of service as practice takes us to see where do I come up against my own self-centeredness, against my own sense of what? Being better than others, worse than others. Famous passage of the Buddha says, be wary of when you take yourself as better than others. Be wary of when you take yourself as worse than others. Be wary of when you take yourselves as equal to others. 
you get the point. <laughs> um, maybe another version of the English uh, phrase, comparisons are odious. So we look into where there is separation, separation with ourselves and others. Part of what gets explored in service work. Ourselves and other beings, including non-humans. And then there's some more subtle ways that we create separation that may not always be obvious. The separation between some parts of ourselves and other parts of ourselves. Are there parts of ourselves that we find yucky and unacceptable? Sometimes we use the word shadow to point to those areas. Do we make a separation between my spiritual practice, my inside life, and what I do outside? That can be a separation that we cut through some when we do service. And ultimately, do we make a separation between myself and what I hold to be sacred? Or do, can I feel myself as connected to these deep sources of interconnection and beauty and love and vast awareness? So how do we, how do we take service as a, a path of practice that helps us to move in that direction. A starting point, I think, that's particularly uh, available for us with a, a practice of mindfulness and loving kindness is that our path of practice is both a practice that has an inside aspect, we might say, and an outside aspect. And ultimately, they're very intermingled that we do our practice on the cushion, we do our own um, inner work, we bring that inner work into the world, and yet we also act outwardly. So we combine, as it were, an inner practice and an outer practice. And that may seem obvious and important, but it's not always done. We know that a lot of people, as it were, uh, focus more on the inner to the, at the expense of the outer or vice versa. It's, it's quite common with Buddhist practice to have it be primarily inner and not to even sometimes pay so much attention to how one is in the world or to, it's, some, it's not always easy to bring that to one's work. There's a very powerful essay that uh, a scholar and uh, writer named Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote about uh, two years ago. He is an uh, American who was, has been a longtime monk, I think for whatever, 30 years, and has been the editor and translator for some of the wonderful new translations of the uh, Buddhist uh, suttas or discourses. And this essay came personally as a surprise because I thought he was very conservative monk, very orthodox and so forth. And he came out with this essay saying basically that uh, Buddhist practitioners really needed to uh, bring themselves to a life of service. 
and, and that just focusing on the inner development might be self-centered and that what the world needs, especially right now, are people who combine that inner work with outer, outer focus. This is what he said, and he, was, he, was, he used pretty strong language. Listen to this. It seems to me that we Western Buddhists tend to dwell in a cognitive space that defines the first noble truth of, of suffering, largely against the background of our middle-class lifestyles, as the gnawing of discontent, the ennui of over-satiation, the, pa the pain of unfulfilling relationships, poor with about a Buddhist theory as bondage to the round of rebirths. Too often, I feel, our focus on these aspects of suffering, her dukkha, has made obliv us oblivious to the vast suffering that overwhelms three-fourths of the world's population. So our practice may be more self-centered and inner. And then the model for many people of doing service work is to have it be all outer. You know, we act outwardly in the world and we don't give so much attention to the inner. Uh, we don't pay so much attention to our inner life and then we find ourselves a year or two or three into it uh, burned out because we haven't been able to attend to the signals of our mind, our body, and so forth, or we find ourselves in organizations doing wonderful work that are semi-dysfunctional because of conflicts, because people don't know how to deal with the inner stuff that comes up when people uh, work together. So the, the direction, I think, that's a starting point for service as a path of practice is to connect the inner and the outer. One of the persons who's explored this really beautifully is the Vietnamese monk and teacher and poet uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. And he said it this way in the context of Vietnam. And he used the words engage Buddhism to mean this connection of inner and outer work. So he was talking from the context of Vietnam. When I was in Vietnam, he says, so many of our villages were being bombed. Along with my monastic brothers and sisters, I had to decide what to do. Should we continue to practice in our monasteries or should we leave the meditation halls in order to help the people who were suffering under the bombs? What do you think he said? What? How many vote for leave? How many vote for stay in the monasteries? How many vote for something else? Okay, the answer is both. A little bit of a trick question, sorry. <laughs> So this is what he said. After careful reflection, we decided to do both. To go out and help people and to do so in mindfulness. We called it engaged Buddhism. Mindfulness must be engaged. Once there is seeing, there must be acting. We must be aware of the real problems. Then with mindfulness, we will know what to do and what not to do to be of help. And so that connection of inner and outer is really important for a life of service. And and yet, sometimes we find ourselves in a cycle where it's mostly, we mostly want inner attention to our own inner development, and sometimes we're more outer. I know for myself, um, in, when I was young, like starting as a teenager, I was more of an activist. And when I started getting to meditation in my um, early 20s, 
um, most of my activist friends thought I was blowing it. They thought I was really just going into escapist stuff. And, and yet there was a cycle of really wanting to go inside. And then at a certain point, there was a movement outside. And so I think it's really, even if we have that sense of connecting in inner and outer, it's really important to honor our own cycles, where we are. And for myself, I went more inwardly for quite a few years, but then the, the balance came eventually. So in this uh, path of practice, we develop certain qualities and we come up against certain challenges. So I wanted to talk about four qualities that we develop in our, our service. And each of them offers challenges as well as ways that transformation occurs. And the four qualities I want to mention are uh, clarifying intention, generosity, developing generosity, developing gratitude, and developing compassion. I think these, and we could mention a lot of other qualities. We could mention, need I say, patience. We could, we could uh, talk about developing mindfulness as we're serving. We could talk about wisdom. We could talk about um, courage at times. We could talk about a lot of qualities, but it's helpful, I think, to see service as a path of practice in terms of the development of qualities and the way that there are times when there are challenges or there are places we find ourselves in where we get caught, we get stuck, but that this is really just what happens when we um, devote ourselves to service. So one of the areas, the first area I want to mention is the area of motivation and intention. I think that one of the ways we develop in service is our, our, our intentions become clearer. And I, th I think of intention in two main ways, both as the deeper aspiration that we have for what we do. And this can be a practice. We can try to tune in to that aspiration. What is my motivation for this? It's actually a form of practice. You know, why do I volunteer at Spirit Rock? After tonight and tomorrow, and the word gets out, some people may volunteer at Spirit Rock for the promise of Dennis's cooking. <laughs> you know? Uh, but what's the motivation? You know, what's our motivation for our service? And I think that is perfectly appropriate for it to be both uh, a, a more self-oriented motivation, as many of us mentioned in the go-round, it might be to connect, to feel connected, to be part of a community, to offer, and so forth. But it's something that we work with when we offer service. What is our motivation? Do we have mixed motivation? In the long run, the motivation can be to help others. And we work through, I know in my own um, work as a teacher, taking a teaching role, um, I think there was always a motivation to help, but I know when I was first starting out teaching and I was a little nervous giving talks, part of my mo motivation initially, at least part of it, was survival. <laughs> <laughs> and I found as, I, as the survival issue got somewhat worked out, that the motivation really to be helpful to others got stronger. 
you know. And, and so it's fine for there to be mixed motivation, but we can also know that part of the path of practice is to deepen in our motivation, our aspiration. And we can do practices that help us do that. We can, for example, at the beginning of a day or the beginning of an activity, we can ask ourselves to be in touch with a deeper aspiration. I start off most sittings saying to myself, I say, some of you know this because you've been in my groups and I've disclosed this, but I have like a, whatever, seven line, uh, almost like a prayer or a statement of intention, motivation, aspiration, that starts with, I intend to awaken for the benefit of others. That's come into shape. And I say that typically four times a day. That's helpful. You know, in some traditions, that's done before every sitting. You can do that once a day to touch with one's aspiration. And even one, does, one can say that even if you don't totally feel it at the moment. I guess that's a version of, a um, little bit of a version of faking it till you make it, right? A little bit. But you can say that sometimes the saying of it brings up the aspiration. And so we can work with that once a day, just to touch with that, what that aspiration is. Sometimes we do retreats. I know for myself, retreats bring me in touch with my deeper aspiration. And we can also work with intention at the beginning of any activity. We can, let's say we're starting a volunteer shift and we can say, can I touch base both with my deeper aspiration and just what my intention is for this activity? And they're kind of two separate aspects of intention. One is the, we might call aspiration, and the other is what guides me in this particular um, block of time. So it might be, the aspiration might be to benefit others, but the intention might be, I'm gonna just try to be present as best I can, or I'm, I'm gonna intend to just be in my body as best I can, or I'm gonna intend to um, really focus on uh, kind speech or something like that. So we can have two aspects and it's a very wonderful way to practice intention is to find ways to touch base with both aspects, both the deeper aspiration and the uh, particular intention for an activity. And to find ways to come back to the deeper aspiration. Some of you know Julia Butterfly Hill the local tree sitter. And she, she likes to ask before every activity, is my action coming out of love? And so there are practices like that that, we, that can bring us back to that clarity of intention. A second area that we develop in is generosity. Translation from the Pali of the word dana. And we may have heard at retreats a lot of dana talks, but, but dana is actually um, way, way broader than having to do with finances or with economics. It's really about the offering of anything beneficial, time, energy, support, care, love, teaching, whatever. And some of you may know that it's the first of the paramis, the first of the qualities that are, that are developed in um, some forms, some ways of understanding the training that we undergo. In fact, in Asia, 
it's more customary to train in generosity first rather than meditation. Here we tend to train in meditation first and come around to generosity later, uh, to come around to focus on that. But in Asia, it's more the reverse. So it's taken to be part of the, we might say, uh, character development that people go through to, to develop a, um, a kind and offering heart. And it's a value that we find in so many cultures, the quality of generosity and hospitality. Um, I spent a lot of my time as a teenager in my early 20s in the southern mountains, in um, mostly Virginia and then later in uh, Kentucky. And uh, especially in the mountains in western Virginia where I um, really spent a lot of time with people who were pretty much in the 19th century, you know, in the, in the mountains there. And there was an amazing spirit of generosity that my brother and I found. We, we, um, one summer, we built a cabin and we didn't buy anything to build a cabin. We got people, let us, uh, gave us, let us tear down shacks. They gave us wood and so forth. And I think, I think we had to pay for the roof, but our total expenses for building a pretty good sized cabin was $1,400. And there was an incredible sense of generosity there. People helped each other with their, their um, making of hay. And there was a total giving. And I think, that, I think that's been lost. I think that's part of our culture that's um, suffered some. And we find it in many other cultures as well. I think many of you know that. You know, I have another uh, experience that was really powerful for me was spending time <coughs> in the uh, native cultures of uh, British Columbia and being taken into the ceremony called the potlatch, which is basically a gift-giving uh, ceremony where generosity is right at the center of the culture. And I don't want to glorify those cultures. I think there, you know, there are a lot of, lot of issues. And, but the potlatch is an old ceremony in which one gives gifts. And, um, the ceremony I went to uh, about 10 years ago took three days and there was gift giving for three days. Mutual gift giving. And some of you know the phrase that some cultures are based on what's called a gift economy as opposed to a market economy. And there have, they have the phrase sometimes that's been popularized, the gift has to keep moving. So there's a sense that the basic perspective is that I receive gifts and I offer gifts. And that I come to see life more through the lens of generosity than through the lens of self-centeredness and accumulation. And so it would be obvious from that that we in this culture have to deal with our own conditioning. When we work with generosity and develop generosity, we have some conditioning to work through call it self-centeredness or the sense that I have to accumulate my pile so I can be secure and so forth. And that's part of what we, part of what we work, part of what we work through. And in developing generosity, as all of us are doing here in, in volunteering, I'm sure that we come up at times against uh, aspects of self-centeredness. In the classical Buddhist tradition, 
generosity is especially understood as that which cuts through greed. Many of us know that the so-called uh, three poisons that are connected with suffering are greed, hatred, and delusion. And we have different ways of transforming each of these. Generosity is especially taken to help us cut through greed, which is, of course, linked with the other two, especially delusion. Um, a few years ago, uh, my good friend Diana Winston and I led a class uh, which we called uh, greed management. <laughs> we actually didn't have very many people sign up, but we, <laughs> we decided to do it anyway. I think we had, basically, to be honest, we had um, two teachers and five students. <laughs> but we were into it. And, and so it actually was very interesting because we got clearer about what greed is. And we got to see more clearly. And it was a great, it was a wonderful class. I think we did it for five weeks. And the last class was uh, an exam in which we um, all went to the newly opened uh, Bed, Bath, and Beyond store <laughs> in El Cerrito. Some of you have been there. I, you know, it was just opened. And we were asked to do, we asked everyone to do 30 minutes of silent walking meditation <laughs> in the Bed, Bath, and Beyond store. And then to come together and debrief. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it was, uh, I never knew there were so many uh, garbage cans that one could buy. It was just, it was really, it was really quite something. And I left there feeling that I now knew that I had, um, so many needs that I wasn't <laughs> aware of before I went into the store. That I really, you know, like, the one I most remember is, is an extra ledge on a television set that permits one to store things and make use of empty space uh, more efficiently. And what, what, we <laughs> what we found in that class was that the, the, the hallmark of, of greed uh, was especially a kind of self-centeredness, a sense of my needs matter, than other, matter more than other people's needs, often a kind of driven quality, sometimes a sense of uh, being oblivious to consequences. Think of the economic system, you know, of being just so driven but not having a long-term view. That, and we found, just looking at our own experience, that that was characteristic of greed. When we're in the grips of greed, we often don't care about others' needs, and we are not very savvy about consequences. Sometimes a sense of entitlement as well. So we, when we develop generosity, that's some of, what we, some of what we cut through, some of what we work through. The third quality, gratitude, is very, very similar. We, in a sense, uh, appreciate the generosity that we've received and we want to offer back. We have a sense of um, we have a sense of 
appreciation for what's been received and can focus on that and feel, um, feel full and feel a kind of uh, resting in almost in that what we might call a quality of blessing, of having been blessed. And so it's really, in terms of gratitude, it's something that we do at the level of the heart. It's something that we, that we offer back. It's a beautiful practice to, to do both as a conscious practice and as something that we may feel comes up naturally in service. As a formal practice, it's very simple. And probably many of you do gratitude practice, but I just want to mention a very simple way to do it that might be simply in a given sitting to reflect on areas of one's life where there's gratitude. I think probably many of you do this. It can be done, if it's done for five or 10 minutes a day, it can have a big impact on consciousness. It might just be, it might, you might want to write down a list of what you're grateful for. Five things, 10 things, and reflect on that list. 10 minutes a day, it will have a big impact, especially if you tend to be a person who gravitates towards the problems of a given situation. That's my conditioning. <laughs> Gratitude, a wonderful practice for me, maybe for at least a few of you, if not the, all of you, <laughs> or the majority, but, but I think it's wonderful for those who tend to go into a situation and tend to see the problem. And it doesn't um, take away the wonderful qualities of discernment that are, let's say, the best of that ability to see problems. It's a quality that comes, I think, out of, out of service. We can develop that sense of gratitude. The fourth quality I want to mention is compassion. And I think this is another quality that gets developed in service. Ultimately, we want to help reduce suffering. Even if it's not, even if we're helping in some way that doesn't directly, as it were, stand on the front lines and work with um, direct suffering, I think everything that we do here at Spirit Rock is linked with the fact that our practice ultimately is about transforming suffering, about offering the resources of practice for us to others to help to them to be with the human condition and particularly to both be able to be with and transform suffering and to open up to the um, depths of human experience, to the beauties, to, to love, to wisdom, to uh, generosity, and so forth. In some types of service, we do work directly with those who are suffering. We do work directly and learn how to be with suffering and help give resources 
for working with suffering and transforming suffering. And a large part of our practice on the cushion and elsewhere is to learn how to be with suffering without running away. To learn how to be with the unpleasant and have the capacity to stay with that. And for those of you in types of service where you come up against suffering, that's an incredible training to, to, be, to be with that kind of suffering. Sylvia Borstein is one of my mentors. She says all the time, it's all compassion. Forget all the other stuff. It's all compassion. It's all sort of holding each other with a basic kindness, with some awareness of the challenges of every human life. We're all born into this human life. It's not easy at times. Right? There are challenges. And to hold each other with more kindness is such a crucial part of a life of service. To maybe help us give some slack when this detail or that detail doesn't go quite right. Quite right. Houston Smith, who's, who I really am pleased to count as one of my mentors, he told a story about the writer Aldous Huxley, who uh, he died in 1963, and, and Houston got to know him before he died. And Aldous Huxley said, you know, I'm asked all these questions all the time about the nature of truth, the nature of reality, and so forth. And he says, what I most want to tell people is try to be a little kinder. One of my good friends puts on her answering machine, her telephone answering machine, after all the information about, oh, hello, you've reached this number, please leave a message. And then she says, and try to be a little kinder towards yourself than you think you need to be. <laughs> so I think we, when we develop in service, we learn that capacity to hold everything with compassion and kindness. And we have the practices of loving kindness, uh, compassion, joy, equanimity to help us do that. So I've mentioned some of the challenges that come up in taking service as practice. I want to mention just a few others, and, and then I'll, I'll um, finish. Um, So I've mentioned some of the challenges of a life of service, seeing with our mindfulness where there's self-centeredness, seeing where we hold on. You know, sometimes when we are developing compassion, we might find ourselves taking ourselves as compassionate, but actually taking ourselves as superior. It's uh, one of the, the so-called near enemy of compassion is pity, thinking ourselves somehow superior to another person. So there are all these challenges that we work through when we, when we embrace a life of service. There are many, many of them. A few others I just wanted to mention. I, I particularly got clear about this when um, Diana Winston and I, about five years ago, 
we offered a day long here uh, for service providers. And we had, um, you know, we had therapists and social workers and activists and uh, people in the medical field and so forth. And it was really amazing. At the beginning of the day, they just complained. But it really pointed to some of the obstacles. So what did they talk about? Kind of the obvious. They pointed to how um, uh, burnout was so common. You know, to how uh, partly personal, partly the way organizations are structured. You know, with overwork, low pay, and so forth. So they talked about that. They talked about feeling isolated. They talked about um, um, having too much to do. They talked about a sense sometimes in the service area that they shouldn't take care of themselves. They should just help others. Imbalance between taking care of oneself and taking care of others. And so these are, these are some of the areas that we sometimes need to attend to. You know, is there a way to both take care of ourselves and help others? I think in the long run, we have to find ways to do that or it's not sustainable. And sometimes we have to um, be on a cycle where our primary service maybe is to ourselves. So I think it's helpful if we feel, feel drawn to this sense of service to um, see it more as a path, to see, uh, to work with these qualities of motivation, intention, work consciously with a sense of generosity, of developing uh, less greed, seeing that we do come up against self-centeredness, to take really this as a path to work with gratitude, compassion, as well as qualities I haven't mentioned. Uh, qualities of patience and so forth. I believe that this is really uh, crucial to the world right now, that we have, in a, in a, in a way, the chance to develop uh, a path of service that combines the inner work with the outer helping in a way that hasn't really been developed so clearly in the world, that we may, be, in a way, really be pioneers and helping to offer a model that I think is really needed by the world. You know, with all that's necessary um, in the coming years, with the great challenges that we have and will have, you know, related to the state of the world and uh, global warming and and just the just the quest to have healthy communities, that people who embrace this path of connecting their inner lives with helping others and take this as at least a part of their lives, I think it's really offering something that's incredibly needed in the world. And I think I'll end just with um, two passages from this very beautiful essay that uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote. Uh, I think it's called A Challenge to Buddhists. And as is becoming more customary during, during Dharma talks, I'll say that it's available on the internet and you can Google it. <laughs> I find myself giving URLs more frequently during talks. Interesting. So you can find this. It's, uh, it, was, it was from Buddha Dharma, fall of 2007. He, and he said this, the Buddha's mission 
The reason for his arising in the world was to free beings from suffering by uprooting the roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. These roots don't exist only in our own minds. Today, they have acquired a collective dimension and have spread out over whole countries and continents. To help free beings from suffering today, therefore requires that we go outside, that we also counter the ways that greed, hatred, and delusion appear in um, institutions and in culture. In our each historical period, the Dharma finds new means to unfold its potentials in ways precisely linked to that era's distinctive historical conditions. I believe that our own era provides the appropriate historical stage for the transcendent truth of the Dharma to bend back upon the world and engage human suffering at multiple levels. So he says this is the calling of our time to connect that inner work with being in the world and really embracing, at least partially, that life of service. So I'll stop here and invite us just to sit for about a minute together. And then Nadira will take us further. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.